everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, and as you probably know by now, if you've been following our stuff for any amount of time at all, we're not big fans of common range training with your handgun, because frankly, it's just not realistic enough for how you'll most likely be attacked in a real crime. But frankly, a lot of the so-called tactical training I've seen out there isn't much better because it's based on outdated principles of what it's really like to defend yourself in an ambush. So I reached out to one of my friends who's an expert in close combat gunfighting and asked him to share some of his best tips for surviving an attack that literally takes place in the space of a phone booth. Now there's lots of powerful tactics in this interview that you can put to use right now to make you better prepared for a real attack. I know you're going to love it, so check this out now. Bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging. Would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, you know how to survive. If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. It's pretty common for the average gun owner out there to train with their firearm for the attack that happens under ideal conditions. You know, where the attacker is 7 to 10 yards away in ideal lighting and doesn't plan on moving as you unload round after round into a one-inch shot group in their midsection. At least that's what the typical training scenario looks like, as most people are shooting paper targets in the relaxed atmosphere of the local gun range. That, my friends, is marksmanship training. But those of you listening right now most likely didn't choose your firearm for marksmanship. You chose it for protection, real protection, versus a real attacker in a real battle for life or death. In these scenarios, you're not going to have the luxury of the perfect weapon draw leading to a perfect sight picture. In fact, when you're ambushed by a violent prison-trained thug at night from behind the car next to yours in a parking lot, you're most likely not even going to be able to get to your gun without first going hand-to-hand, or even hand-to-weapon if he's armed. Will you know what close-quarters combat skills you need to be able to overcome a bigger, stronger attacker and fight your way to the first shot? You will after this interview. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare in your role as a protector and a patriot. And today we're going to go close quarters with today's guest, Craig Douglas, about this very nasty topic of clinch range combat shooting. Craig, welcome back to the program, man. Jeff, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate the opportunity once again. No, it took us a a long time to get this together. I know it's going to be well worth it. I've, I've been looking forward to this. So, Listen, everyone, um, Craig is a retired 21-year police officer and former commander of his agency's SWAT team. And during his time on the force, Craig held line assignments in corrections, patrol, undercover ops, investigations, and has been a narcotics group supervisor. And he was also the primary defensive tactics instructor at the Southern Regional Public Safety Institute. And he's personally trained over 5,000 police officers at the academy level. Now, a U.S. Army veteran, Craig believes in always keeping his combat skills razor sharp and has over 30 years background in Filipino, Indonesian, Brazilian, and Japanese martial arts. He's been conducting training in the private sector in the U.S. and abroad for several years as well. Now, to learn more about Craig and his training, you can visit him online at www.shivworks.com. And that's S-H-I-V-W-O-R-K-S.com. 
Okay, great. Let's go ahead and get into it. Um, I know you get a lot of people with varying levels of expertise coming through your close quarters combat shooting classes and even highly trained operators who are struggling with countering an ambush. What would you say are the biggest mistakes that you see most people make the first time they're tested with a real force-on-force -force ambush drill? And what's the number one solution to overcome these mistakes? Generally speaking, the, the biggest mistake most people make is going for the gun at the wrong time. So looking at the entire subject of clinch range gunfighting, we have to take an inter- or multidisciplinary approach to problem solving. So orthodox marksmanship and gun handling skills have to mate with the reality of opponents and targets that are rapidly closing and willing to close with you. And, and historically, we don't train uh, firearms that way. We train on stationary targets that pretty much don't don't close. We may train on movers and things like that that, that, that move side to side, but rapidly closing down and willing to actually grab you, clinch you, or hit you with something, a contact weapon. Um, we usually, historically, we don't see that done in firearms training. Consequently, hand-to-hand -hand work, the vast majority of it is not done in a weapons-based environment, and certainly not from, from an ambush perspective where you're starting off in a deficit. You've already been hit. You've already been stabbed. Uh, the, the attack is in motion. You're behind the curve. So, uh Putting those together and, and, and organizing that in a, in a fashion is probably the, the, really what we're trying to do in a, in a basic ECQ or clinch range type gunfighting course. And the number one problem is people revert to their training, their orthodoxy, whether that's martial arts or whether that's handgun work, and they do what they've always done, and their old training comes out because it's pattern. So the, the biggest mistake I see is, is when people get under pressure they go for that gun, it, regardless of the timing or stabilizing the entanglement, clinch, ground fight, what have you, um, and make what we call a timing uh, a timing error. They, they went for the gun at the wrong time, and typically that, that makes the situation worse. They may get a shot off. It, it, it's questionable whether the shot is effective or not, but that's that's the number one is the is, is the, the bad timing decision. You'll hear me. If got people watch like video from class usually student-posted video on YouTube, you'll hear quite often me in the background saying bad timing decision, and that's what that refers to. That's probably the biggest mistake that, that a neophyte makes uh, when they're first pressure tested in this kind of environment. Yeah. Well, and I have to imagine also it becomes like a fumbling issue because most people are looking to, you know, they're looking to unholster at the range, you know, if, if they're even getting to a range where they can go from being in a holstered um, scenario and then get to it, like especially concealed. And so, you know, at that point, under ideal conditions, it's not it's not so typically so hard because you don't have somebody bearing down on you. But if you are have somebody charging at you and you're forced to go for your if they try to go for their weapon with bad timing, it becomes this like fumbling exercise. Like all of a sudden now your shirt's not getting up fast enough. You can't get your hand on it. Now you're bumbling around, and and that's got a telegraph your moves also. So if somebody's already charging at you and they see the, uh oh, this guy has a gun, that changes a lot of their mindset also to, wait a minute, if he's got a gun, I have to stop him from shooting me. So this brings us into kind of, I think one of the, the common areas that we need to look at with this, which is retention. And yes. we talk, when we talk about retention, especially when you're looking at an ambush in close quarters, even if you can get to your gun, 
your attacker can stop you from unholstering it and can wrestle it out of your hands and can use it against you. And I know there's a lot of different methods of retention out there, but what always bothers me with this fo- it, it, with with retention is is that everything is like the focus on the gun and the assumption yeah. that both you and the bad guy are going to basically like thumb wrestle your way over who can get to it first and who can get it out of the holster. And that personally, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'm wondering what specific tactics you train people in to avoid having their weapon taken away from them when they're in a close quarter struggle, either with the gun in the holster or, you know, basically just barely in their hands. Probably the, the, the big rock here is if you can protect yourself, you can protect the gun. And, and most people go into this thinking, well, I have to be able to protect the gun, defend the gun. And, and typically when that thought process manifests, it, it's something like you'll see an initial attempt at a gun grab. You'll see both of those hands go down to the gun. And, and what happens is, um, you know, the, the, you're, you're essentially leaving your head open. And the bad guy just starts punching you in the face. So what we see is a lot of head trauma um, and a lot of knockouts that occur when we have that defending the gun mentality um, versus defending yourself. So, And, and defending, our, defending yourself, we, we break down essentially into two components. You have to stay conscious and mobile. Those are, again, the big rocks. If you can stay conscious and you can stay mobile, then we can start looking at the specifics of keeping someone's hands away from your firearm, whether that's striking him, whether that's taking a grappling position that, that keeps someone's limbs, adapting wrestling in such a way that it keeps their limbs away from your waistline and away from their waistline, at least long enough to set up strikes or long enough to escape from an entanglement, or long enough to deploy your own weapon and shoot literally while you're entangled with another body. So... Um, the first specific thing is, is protecting yourself, teaching you how to stay conscious and, mo- and mobile in that moment of impact, uh, stabilizing entanglement and keeping someone's hands away from your waistline. Then after that, eh, you can kind of do what you want. You can draw a contact weapon. You can, you can punch with impunity. You can, you can technically grapple uh, and manipulate, manipulate your way out of that entanglement. Uh, you have those options, but those are the two most important. Protect yourself, keep the hands away from your waistline. So I, I guess just to clarify that, you know, really most people are just trying to get out of that, like, okay, both of you wrestling for the gun, you're going you're gonna to have to use your hands. And, and you know, what's, what's interesting, I mean, and I don't know if you get this at your classes, because I think people might show up kind of expecting some of the stuff that you're going to do, but a lot of people who are gun owners see it as, well, I don't need to know any hand-to-hand or self-defense skills. You can't karate chop a bullet. That's what I've got my gun for. I mean, you probably get a lot of that. Not so much. I think, you know, I think at this point, at least for me, I'm I'm not saying that that attitude is not, you know, prevalent in in, uh, the, the, the concealed carry community. Generally speaking, by the time someone does their research, finds me, um, researches this class and watches literally 10 years worth of video all over YouTube posted by hundreds of students at this point, they kind of know what they're getting into. Yeah. So, uh, and, and the videos are pretty self-explanatory. You know, they, they look kind of like fight club. People see them and they're like, wow, that looks like a real fight. That looks hard. That looks dangerous. Yes. It's, it's, it is higher risk training. It, it can be difficult. It's not, you know, done safely or it's done, you know, uh, you know, a cavalier way. And, and usually by the time somebody gets to that, get, you 
makes the decision to, to, to come do training with me, I think I've lost a lot of that. So, so occasionally one of those guys will come in, but that's, that's really rare. But you're right. I think that, that attitude of people who, who say things like that, I think they say things like that out of ignorance and fear. Well, and I also think it's 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 good ego training, right? Like it, everybody wants to feel confident with their firearm. I mean, you you don't want to walk around afraid or just. I don't know of anybody that has a weapon that walks around thinking, "Oh my God, I have. I'm probably never going to be able to use this in a real fight at all." Everybody right. likes to feel like they're protected, and the, you know, I mean, I think that's where <laughs> that's where you're getting you're getting the cream of the crop because people that already know what to expect when they get to your course, it's like. They're the ones who are willing to who are willing to put themselves out there and say, "Okay, I know what reality is like, and that's what I want to train for." Because when I when I need to really protect myself in that type of a scenario, you know, that's not the first time I want to be trying this stuff. And so, right, that's yeah. that's absolutely the kind of client I cater to. That's the bulk of the people. They have made the decision that well, they want to test themselves. They yeah. want to do this kind of training, and it's you know. It, we we validate the day's content every day of the coursework. We end the day, and it's usually typically a, an 11 hour training day. Um, we end the day with a validation model we call an evolution, which is a, a an unscripted, non consensual, and competitive exercise with a good guy want trying to win and a bad guy who's also trying to win. So, um, I. I I think people want that, you know, uh, by the time they've made the decision to get the coursework, you're right. I, I tell people all the time that, that the best people I know, um, the most well-adapted, well-adjusted, uh, sociable people I know are the ones that come out on the weekends and shoot themselves with marking cartridges and punch each other in the face. So <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting... Uh, good times, good it's times. It's an interesting dichotomy. It really is. Funny. Well, that is, where we're, that is where we're trying to take our audience is to really get, get over the ego training and into this, uh, into this more. And so, uh, look, everybody, we, we've been talking with Craig Douglas from ShivWorks.com about close-quarter combatives in a real gunfight. And we do have a lot more coming up, including how to gain back the advantage if you find yourself being pummeled with punches and locked up in your attacker's clinch. What to do when your armed response becomes a do-or-die ground fight and you're on the bottom. And simple gunfighting drills anyone can do to prepare for a no-warning ambush attack. But first, check out this special message. Are you a proud defender of the Second Amendment? Are you tired of your whiny sister-in-law's liberal tantrums about the need for more gun control? <laughs> Are you infuriated with government gun grabbers trying to strip you of your God-given right to own a nuclear bazooka? Well, my fellow patriot... It's time for a Smackdown. Smackdown. In our free 2AD Smackdown debate guide, you'll discover how to win any gun control argument armed with three questions. That's right. Just ask these three simple questions and watch as that smug little smile disappears from their little face of even the most ignorant know-it-all liberal. Plus, you'll discover easy, fact-based, can't-lose, crybaby comebacks for the most common myths, misinformation, and outright lies. Like, gun shows are the criminal's flea market. Countries with tighter gun control have lower crime rates. Banning guns protects our children. More control keeps guns out of the hands of crazy people. 
and a whole lot more. Arm yourself now with the ultimate argument winner by claiming your free copy of 2AD Smackdown. Visit www.2adsmackdown.com. That's the number 2, adsmackdown.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Craig Douglas of ShivWorks.com talking about how to fight your way to the first shot in a clinch range gun battle. We've got a lot more to dig into, so let's go ahead and jump right back in. Okay, Craig, let's let's assume that you do have control of your weapon, but you're still struggling with your attacker at close range, and he realizes that the only way to defeat you is to overwhelm you with strikes and lock you up so you don't shoot him. What can you do to avoid getting your bell rung and be able to counterattack to end the fight quickly if you're facing a barrage of punches and your attacker's trying to grapple with you? The big strategy is position and escape. That's the primary strategy. So um, we, we need position. We need to be in, in the right place within an entanglement. So we are locked up with someone. Um, we need to be in a position where we're, we're, we're not getting our bell rung. We're not on the receiving end of punches. Um, you know, if, if there's a contact weapon in play, like a knife, you know, his arms aren't pumping. So, so we tend to seek uh, an adapted wrestling game that works essentially off uh, of, of an underhook where your arm is up underneath his arm and attached to his shoulder, keeping his hand away from your waist and somewhat stabilizing it. And then an arm tie of some type, like a bicep or a wrist tie. And we'll call that a, a hook and tie game. Uh, we usually try and take about a 90-degree angle someone, on someone. So we've cut their center line. And basically that puts them in a position of, you know, vulnerability. We're in a position of dominance. So once we stabilize that position, we're not getting run backwards and we're pinwheeling for balance. We're balanced. We're stable. Now we can look at escaping. And generally speaking, the safer way to escape is from behind him. So I teach uh, uh, basically from drawing from rust and, again, a duck under and an arm drag to try and get the adversaries back. What, what I see especially with the gun people is if they get into a clinch and they feel themselves getting overwhelmed, the tendency is to release in front of their hands, backpedal, drop their hands to their waist in an attempt to get that gun out. Because the gun, you know, is essentially a talisman. If they can just get the gun out between them and the adversary, it's like a, like a cross on a vampire, you know, it'll ward <laughs> them off. Um, and that's not the case where we see, we see a much higher, when people release in front of the, uh, the adversary's hands, we see a much higher, uh, 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 number of people who get knocked to the ground because they're back on their heels backpedaling. We see a lot more people get knocked out because they're dropping their hands to the waist and not to access the gun. So generally speaking, plan A, once a clinch is stabilized and you're not getting your bell rung, beat up, stabbed, or, or you're controlling uh, maybe his gun, you know, inside of that clinch is to try and get behind. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> a lot of people, when talking about fighting on the ground, they'll say that the first mistake is always that you ended up on the ground in the first place. Um, but you, you still have to study ground fighting because that can absolutely happen. Like you said, you might pinwheel back, you might trip over the curb, you might you know, trip over another person, you could just get, you know, knocked down or even, you know, potentially even close to getting knocked out. And so you have to train for being on the ground. So when you've run force-on-force -force training encounters with your course participants, what are the most critical tactics that you've found to work in a life-or-death scenario where it's a ground struggle? 
the, the most critical, the, the most critical tactic is if, if we were, if we were discussing this from a Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, perspective, I would say it would be a guard, but, but to get away from that vernacular and just, you know, come back to a lay person's perspective, keeping your legs and feet between you and the adversary, the, that's the critical point. That really is. We have to do that. Um, if, if a person can, can pass as it's called, uh, and passing for our purposes means get past your, your cycling feet and legs and they can sink their hips down onto your, your chest. That's a really, really terrible place to be. And you've lost a lot of your power. You've lost the ability to escape. So, uh, keeping those legs pumping and cycling with kicks, with, with technical, uh, adapted Brazilian Jiu Jitsu guard work that's, that's, that's contextualized for a gun person. That's the key to being able to get the space to get back to your feet or get the space to get the firearm. But your legs are what gives you the space to do both. You have to keep your legs between you and this person. You know, I know you're also um, very well versed in and trained in, in in the use of a knife as well, both for defense mm-hmm. and, and, and defense. Is this where a knife comes in in handy, like having a backup for that? I mean, especially when you're looking at when you're in close quarter range like that. I mean, I don't know if it becomes like a a choice between do I go for my knife or do I go for my gun, but are there are there is there a place in here where that's an advantage or the and that that would be beneficial to use, especially when it comes to like groundwork. Yes, so especially if it's a blade that is that is optimized for this problem. And, and I hate to hot moan stuff, but obviously I I, I designed a knife <laughs> that is optimized for this problem. When you do get past, when literally you are torso to torso with somebody a hundred pounds heavier than you, um, the, the, having a knife that, that's designed. That's relatively small, that it's, that it's very difficult to keep, almost impossible to keep it from coming out. If you get it out and just get the point between you and him, then that's going to make some space. That's going to help give you the range that you need. You know, even if you do nothing more than, than get this blade out, post the pommel of the knife on your hip, you know, and get the point towards him, that, that's probably going to give you some space. Either that or he's going to, he's going to get some pretty serious uh, damage. So, you know, we, we think of a knife in the ECQ realm as a get-off-me tool. That's that's really what it is. The knife really, really uh, can can open up windows of opportunity that you wouldn't normally have, and it can augment. Uh, it can't replace technical groundwork, but it can certainly augment technical groundwork. And, and quite often, sometimes, you know, if you're dealing with somebody that's just larger and better than the knife, may very well be your only option. So... Yeah, we, we use knives quite a bit, and, and again, this is provided they are set up and designed for this problem. You're not going to get out a, an 11-inch Bowie, you know, in a chest-to-chest ground fight or, or, or a fight in a vehicle, a fight in a car, same kind of thing. So do you have your own knife that you designed, or what What are you afraid yeah. to hawk, by the way? Because yeah. I love to hawk stuff, so it's okay. It's yeah, okay. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I just sound like a shill, man. I mean, there, there, there are plenty of good knives out there. So it's called the Clinch Pick, and it's been in production since 2002. It's available from uh, from Tadgear.com, Triple Lot Design. They are our, uh, they do, do our customer fulfillment. But it's uh, it's specifically designed for a, a clinch range fight. You know, it's a, uh, we've got about a five and a half inch, uh, overall, uh, envelope, overall footprint, about two and a quarter inch workable blade. 
Uh, it's got a small egg-shaped handle, and it's carried in a downward angle right in the hip thigh crease. So it typically rides for a right-handed person at about probably 1130, and then a left-handed person probably at 130 with a downward angle. So I can literally pin my elbow. If I'm a right-handed guy and I'm trying to draw this, if, if my elbows and arms are pinned to my side, it puts my hands literally right on that knife. So you can get it out. If you can get your hands down to your down to your waist, you can get this knife out. All right. Well, I'm definitely gonna. We'll put a link up on our uh, on our blog as well for this interview, and okay. uh, so people can get some more information over there. So, and I already know what my next uh, interview is going to be now. So, okay. very cool. Um, so, listen. Outside of outside of a safe combat style close quarters combat course like yours. You know, this stuff is really hard to find in, like, local training around people for the most part. I mean, that's why I think a lot of people go to the range. Besides ego training and be able to get used to their weapon, it it is kind of hard to find all of this stuff. And, and a lot of ranges have a minimum target distance and, you know, you, you can't carry concealed there or you can't, you know, train concealed. So what are some specific drills that maybe our listeners can practice to be to prepare for an ambush-style assault where – they can they have to get to and fight with or fight to their gun in a close quarters clinch range. Sure, something uh, you know, taking a blue gun and a heavy bag works pretty well. Uh, just to get you in the habit of manipulating weight and manipulating yourself in such a way where you're having to move around something big and heavy and deploy your firearm. That's not going to teach you timing. But it will get you used to being in body contact with something, you know, wrestle with your bag. Think about, you know, start off on the bottom, put the bag on top of it, you know, and figure out, okay, how do I get out from underneath this? You can literally put a heavy bag, you know, a good 100-pound heavy bag across your waist. Start off with your gun and your holster and think about, all right, well, I don't have any Brazilian jiu-jitsu training, but just right now, how would I get out, you know, from underneath this weight? maybe deploy the gun while you're underneath the weight or get out completely and then deploy the hand. That's a pretty good exercise. That's something solo that you can do, and it just gives you a perspective uh, that, that probably you never really thought about your firearm in. You know, it's just a, it's a very different modality to train in with a handgun. The other one would probably be thinking about the idea of what I call appropriate extension to and compression from the adversary based on proximity of threat. So this is it. This is really, really, really important because of the violent dynamic in and out nature of somebody closing or you closing on someone. Um, typically what happens is with a, with a standard orthodox shooter is they maintain the same level of extension, which for most people is equal light level on top, visually verified post and notch vis-a-vis the sites. Well, the problem with that is if somebody's bearing down on you, then they can get into contact range and slap the muzzle back. But there's still a whole host of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of good shooting you can do within that line of presentation just with a much more compressed position. So the, 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 the way I like to define what is appropriately extended is that if the bag or the target or whatever you're, you're working with solo had arms, could it reach out and touch the barrel of a gun? So you'll see a lot of really compressed positions, and this is very, very dynamic. So if you're coming out of a contact problem, then as you're moving away, the gun is extending appropriately 
And obviously, the, the more of the gun we can see, the better the shooting is, or the gun is compressing appropriately as someone's bearing down on you. So just moving in and out from a stationary target and getting used to, as you move forward, the gun moves back. As you move back, the gun moves forward. And again, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, like many of the best practices are of self-defense, you know, but it's very, very, very important that, that you don't create a weapons retention issue by inappropriately extending the gun or inappropriately compressing the gun. So that's, those are probably the two easiest ones that you can immediately do right now without a partner, without a gym, or without a range that you can actually do in your house. Yeah. And if you do have a partner, it makes it even easier um, and even more realistic. Not only that you can do force on force, but even just, you know, putting that heavy bag on top of you and having somebody sit on it. I know when I deal with my, I take Krav Maga, I've got an amazing structure where I am, and um, he's relentless. Son of a, he just freaking latches on with his legs like in a ground battle, and he'll (laughs) squeeze the freaking life out of me, and he like, he, he really makes it real, so... Having your friends sit on your chest and force you to try and get to it changes the dynamics quite a bit. Or if you've got a, like a, a heavy bag that's that's hanging down and you're doing like stand-up work, you know, you go to push it away. That's great. That works just like it does in you know regular courses against imaginary targets. But when he throws it back at you and it bonks you in the head as you're trying to reach for your weapon. It makes it a whole other story. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and if you have a if you have a body available, oh man, you can do all kinds of nice, neat stuff. You know, yeah. with you. Awesome. Well, Craig, thanks so much, man. This has been this has been really awesome training, and um, and I know everybody. I, again, I'm trying to keep. I keep trying. I'm in this mission to keep trying to get people out of the the static training range and out sure. into more tactical courses and things they can do at home as well. I mean, that's I think that's really key because. How often can you go to a tactical course, you know, and, and really get this kind of force-on-force training? But there is a lot you can do at home. But listen, everybody, um, you really want to go out and try and find one of these courses. Unfortunately, Craig is a traveling instructor, so definitely go to his website. Check out where the next courses are, where he's traveling to. I know he's got a full boat lined up for 2016 and beyond, so um, so definitely check it out and see when you can get in one of those classes. Uh, we'll have a link up to the knife as well, but um, definitely this is all based on reality. So so go check all that stuff out. And you can do that by going over to Craig's website at www.shivworks.com. And again, that's S-H-I-V-W-O-R-K-S.com. And until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. Been modern combat and survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash modern combat and survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.